they've stopped putting out the new movies, and so we've dis- we've decided to do a weekly video game discussion. Yes, the Twin Geeks cast is now your official place for all things video games, since movies are forever cancelled. Well, we realize with all the movie theaters getting shut down, this is a bad market to be in, and yeah. we don't want to be chasing waterfalls here. We want to be going for a real market that's that's flourishing. GameStop says their employees are essential workers, and I think video games are uh, the most essential pastime for Americans. Really, if you if you take a look at the landscape here, movie theaters have been closed for weeks now, and GameStops are still mm-hmm. going strong, so it's obvious, really, where the money is. So that's why we've entirely decided to shift our platform over to video games. In the coming weeks, you'll see all of our movie content disappear off the site as we slowly kind of uh, go through it, decide... How we can spin each article, maybe, if we can spin any into, uh, you know, video game ones. Like, uh, I think Bro's GoldenEye piece will keep for sure, because that's got a video game yeah. link in some way. But for the most part, we're, we're purging the site of anything movie-related and moving on to video games. And uh, I think, Calvin, you're, you're going to tell us about our first video game highlight of the new Twin Geeks. Well... They say GameStop, I say the games can't stop. I say they keep coming. There's hundreds <laughs> of video games released every day. Indie games, big games. This week we have a Nintendo game. We have Animal Crossing, New Horizon. Is that the title? I think that's the title. We know our games. Yeah, I believe it is. It's the uh, fifth or sixth or maybe 20th <laughs> entry in the Animal Crossing series, which has been uh, going on since the GameCube, which mm-hmm. is uh, a really old system for all you youngins out there who don't know. Yeah, the, that's an old system? Okay. Yeah, it, it, for the young people, I mean, they probably don't know. I feel like if we tell them about the, the SNES, they'll have a heart attack. I think I started with, like, in television, so it's all very relative. I, I, I need you guys to get to know my gamer profile. Um, I like to sit in my gamer chair with my gamer controller and uh, eat gamer grub. So, um, uh, for props to our new sponsor please contact us if you actually want to be a sponsor gamer grub the gamer only grub. food i eat when eating <laughs> playing games. i like to chug some mountain dew and, and eat some gamer i don't even know what gamer grub is is that like cheetos is that... like D- doritos i think doritos okay. has like a cross promotion thing with like mountain dew i think that's <laughs> that's what we think of when we think of those those people who sit in their gamer chairs and <laughs> bitch about feminism on the internet yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> Uh, what a picture that paints. Um, I feel like it's Animal the new Crossing. face of the Twin Geeks. <laughs> uh, Twin Geeks Crossing. We'll have a weekly podcast on Animal Crossing. Uh, I'm so excited. Uh, Honestly, I... we should with how you play the game because it's such a time <laughs> commitment. That's the. I'm I'm thinking about getting it still since we do have all this free time and yeah, I love Animal do. Crossing. Uh, last year for for Valentine's Day, I bought my fiance. Um, City Folk for the Wii, which was which is a game, of course, I played and loved a lot, and so we started a town there together, and played religiously for a couple, a good couple months, and then it eventually the problem with Animal Crossing is that it just becomes a little tedious after a while, sure. and you're yeah. just like you're spending two hours every day fishing for rare fish so you can <laughs> yeah. sell them to Tom Nook so that you can upgrade your house, and it's just this repetitive cycle of, of tedium eventually. You know what's really sad? I woke up at four this morning so I could check out my town and do fishing. Right? Yeah, that's, and that's the thing, but it's so wonderful. Uh, the, the only problem with it really is the drawback then is that if you ignore your town for like hmm. e- even a week, then everything goes to shit. It does. <laughs> and there's, uh, I think this one is so much better about baiting you along and giving you like a carrot on a stick. Because, uh, of course, you have like the bells and whatnot in the previous games, but now it has a crafting system. So you never hit that point where you run out of bells, you run out of fruit, you feel like you can't make anything. Like you could always shake down a tree and then, you know, make like a, a what do you need? Like an axe and you'll have a stone and then. Uh, could just keep making stuff, and it it just keeps procuring new content. So I feel like there's an so endless content string. What you're saying then is that Animal Crossing is now Nintendo Minecraft. It is, and I feel like there's so much mobile design creep in it too. Um, uh, our friend Didi and I were discussing. It's just like all the features from a mobile game, but without any of the consequences. So you don't have any uh, uh, microtransactions or anything yet, but it feels so much like it's designed for that format. Like, they picked their iPhone game and put it on there. I don't imagine that Animal Crossing is the kind of game that would benefit from microtransactions of any kind. Yeah. Like, you already have 
sort of you already have microtransactions because you you have the bell system in the game to mm. purchase things. Like the only thing you would get out of it is if, like you could purchase bells. I guess that would be the microtransaction equivalent there. Maybe at at some point I could see it being like a huge venture for like DLC that they could create like huge islands that you could go explore with your friends and you know there's I feel like there's an endless market for not microtransactions but additional content. Mhm. Oh, and that's the nice thing as well is that over the the course of the series, they've created more and more ways for you to interact with other players. Yeah. Starting with like uh, the second game, Wild World, and then really taking off with a uh, City Folk. I remember City Folk had uh, with it that they had these uh, microphone attachments you put on the sensor bar, <laughs> yeah. and so that when you went to other people's villages, you could talk. And I remember doing that with with friends, and it was it was like the craziest new thing. And <laughs> here we are now, just talking through discord in a very casual manner people have you know like this all the time so this one really opens it up but it it kind of exposes the lack of things to do with your friends right like you your friends could just come in your city anytime but after five minutes what are you doing together you know there's not like a shared game you could do like one of you could catch a fish at once you know and then the other fish go away or uh, there's no microphone built into the uh, switch so you have to talk to each other on your phones through Nintendo's mobile app, which is a weird thing. Um, so what what you're saying is that City Folk yeah, was the better game. Because I agree. It had <laughs> I do think City <laughs> Folk is better. I think the island theme is more limited. I think that limits you to like really tropical uh, advancements. Well, cities have a you know they have never ending culture and they have never ending things to riff off of. So I feel like the it, island this- thing's already limiting me. It's been a week. That's interesting. The city was such a nice expansion to City Folk, uh, you know, for it. And and though it wasn't, like, huge, and it doesn't change really ever, like, it was nice to have that different location and, and a little bit more extravagance of stuff going on there. But there is still certain limitations. Like, you always feel like you could have more Animal Crossing. But the big thing I was really curious about was the... Uh, the multiplayer feature in this new one because I know oh, yeah. that you that there's an ability for local multiplayer mm. in this new Animal Crossing, which seems like a revelatory thing to me because part of the big problem with it was when sharing City Folk with my fiance was that it wasn't just like two hours of our time every day; it was two hours <laughs> each, each, yeah, <laughs> so that we could both fish a ton and make money and expand our houses. So that's the problem uh, so far is that I have the one controller, so I have another in the mail, and I need to be able to play with my <laughs> wife or this this marriage isn't going to work. Right. And so that's a... I guess I got one too. Do you use it by a, the Joy-Cons, I'm guessing, is how you're playing? Or? I, I, I take it out of the dock. I, I play it in the Switch. Right. I, I never play it on TV. Oh, okay. So. That's it. Yeah, sometimes I don't as well, but... Uh, but I, I know that's like one controls it because I also have a uh, a pro controller, so okay. I, I, I bet I could use both of those. Oh yeah, but yeah. Anyway, you can. that's my plan. I got from, the pro controller coming, and that'll work out. Nice. From from what I read, it seems like the uh, the local multiplayer, like the second person, is very limited. Not only in yeah. the way that they're they can't move all around the island; they're stuck within the control of the the first person. But like, they don't have access to their pockets or anything. It all just goes straight to like an inventory or somewhere that they can pick up later, which I thought was kind of oh really unfortunate. But I, yeah, <laughs> I, I understand there's limitations because like you can't like since the pocket when you pull it up it takes up the whole screen. Yeah, like you can't have that with two people. Like I don't think there's a way to split screen that. So I think there's a lot of. Uh, design problems that are kind of archaic in GameCube era with Animal Crossing. Like, uh, the inventory, like, the actual field where you're putting stuff down, like, on your island are uh, completely separate design systems. So, like, say, like, in a multiplayer game, someone's visiting your island, you can't, like, work on it. You can't put stuff down. If they're in your home, you can't, like, design your place. Like, it hasn't gotten to a system where everything is integrated and designed on the same layer. Like... Everything's broken off on different systems, and it doesn't quite make sense. Yeah, that's that's the unfortunate thing. If it limits you so much when you have yeah. multiple people running around, I mean, around the goal the is island. you should be able to do everything uh, you do and on anyone's island, right? Right. Well, and I guess part of it as well is that it's just it's it can't like support too much change going on with the people, yeah, that's or, or like the idea that your you know it's it's your island and you don't want people messing with it yeah. necessarily. And so oh, so you have to add like a that, best but... friend. So, like, once you get it, if you hypothetically get it, then, like, add you as best friend so you could, like, cut down the trees and do whatever there. But So not everyone can do it. Oh, uh, okay. You have to, you could limit who can. 
Oh, okay. So that's the idea. So you give people permission to fuck with your island. Right. So that way you could give your code out and strangers could come. I'm surprised. I think eight eight people could be on an island at once. So I see why it would be it would be chaos. But uh, that does that does seem kind of chaotic. But at the same time, I wonder what can eight people do on an <laughs> island together? I like especially because you're. Or I guess from from like uh, distant like. Um, satellite systems yeah. you know you're not uh limited to where you can run in terms of the frame of the screen no like you can have people on opposite ends of the island unlike the local multiplayer like i was talking about yeah everyone's off doing their own thing usually i mean you kind of have to create your old fun i was realizing with dd as we like danced around his uh uh his apartment in a tango <laughs> you, you kind of <laughs> have to do your own thing and i gave him a skirt too so we could role play which was really good fun um there's a there's another problem is that every time someone joins the game, it, it waits like 40, 50 seconds, and you have to watch a screen of them arriving, everyone who's on the island. So uh, say like four people join, then you spend four or five minutes just watching this joining screen. <laughs> Nintendo. It is, it is, I have to say, as always, new discussions of new Animal Crossing always get me excited, and either I want to get the new game, or I want to boot up City Folk again to see how things are doing, but I'm afraid to boot up City Folk again, because it has been, like, <laughs> almost a year since I've visited, yeah. and I, I just can't imagine the disastrous shape it's in. It's gonna break my heart well, to see my town that I work so hard in to be in such disrepair. I think Animal Crossing's the perfect game to be in with the zeitgeist. You need one other person playing it. Like, um, I just remember, like, with my younger brother, we'd have those, we both have our own memory cards, and then we'd check each other's towns, and you have to have someone else along with you. I think a, one of my first internet communities was like an Animal Crossing uh, community for like trade and figuring out how that game works. So I've always been a pretty diehard yeah. fan. Um, it's it's always a lot of fun. I remember like when I first moved out, we, we had me, my fiance, and a friend, a roommate who was living with us, and we all had a place in the town there, and we all contributed to to making it fun and it felt like another thing it, it feels weird to say that because basically the game amounts to a little more than doing a series of manual chores and <laughs> collections and things that you do in real life as well yeah. but it's just it's got this wholesome image and fun style to it that makes it it, it almost feels healing in some ways when you look at the bleakness of the world <laughs> outside compared to and Animal i always Crossing. love the global scope design of the islands the way that it like tracks as you run down it that's such a unique design and so singular to that well, one thing i have noticed that it seems like a nice improvement on the new one is the ability to terraform sure, the island yeah, a little yeah. bit more because one problem with the older ones as well is that, that like you get one or two bridges and like everything is like separated by a giant <laughs> cliffside and so if you want to get from like the the store to the museum yeah. or whatever you have to take this long ass hall all around the side of the island to get to the one bridge that's going to take now you, you have there. like three layers too like you have your main island hub and then you could uh, either use your pole or create bridges and jump over to the other sections and then you have ladders to get up on the ledges so everything's traversable at least Oh, that's cool. That's a that's a cool thing. I think I I'm very <laughs> tempted to check it out again. The the big problem I think is just like yeah. the commitment of time to making the 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 game work to its greatest like, benefit. It takes investment, and I'm not sure I, do I have say, the investment this must or have the ability. Like the, the best ability of like stringing along new information. Like I'm constantly getting drops and things that are really interesting to me. Even if I play ten minutes of the game, I'm trying to limit myself more to like an hour a day now. So. Right, that's the, that's the you got to set limits for yourself. Otherwise, you could just go nuts. Like you're you're gonna spend all your time shaking trees, yeah. hoping furniture falls out of it, redecorating your house, searching for rare fish in the ocean, and bringing that to the museum to expand the collection. There's like what's a really interesting to me to about do. Animal Crossing is how that's designed and layered out for new people. Like how it limits you from doing things. It'll give you something and then take it away for two entire days. What other game takes content away for like multiple days that it's just given you? So uh, it's really good at, like, uh, kind of forcing you through, like, a layered path that it already has decided. Um, but it's very transparent how it's doing that here. And, like, the Nook shop closes at 10 p.m. What if you, like, uh, what if you have a different work schedule and you need to play at night, right? Oh, yeah, that's the thing as well. Like, uh, I do know that, like, 
and based off of my most experience with city folk and such, that there are some Nook store options to change. Like there was the the Nook and yeah. Go, which was a more limited store, but it was open like okay. super late, if not twenty four seven. I think I don't think it was open twenty four seven. But depending on the expansions you get, uh, the hours alternate and change based on the kind of store it evolves into. And then once you f- get the final stage, you can you know he'll tell you. Uh, you know, he'll give you like a list of options of, oh, what do you like most about it? Like, if you say like longer okay. hours, then he'll That's good to, know. to that store. Uh, if if you well, mostly I can play when Ezra's asleep, so I miss both store hours on the earlier and later side. So that's good to know. Well, and that's the thing as well. As soon as Thomas Nook's shop is closed, like half of the things that are worth doing are like gone. Like you're just making money for nothing because that's the only yeah. source of stuff that you can buy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I guess like the museum's the one thing that's a constant, but. Uh, because everyone I, I has really an obsession with it. completion with that. You want to get all of the fish and all of the bugs and stuff. It really got me once I got a uh, ice hockey uniform that dropped to me from the sky. And then I right oh, after yeah. that, <laughs> I, I'm dressed like in an actual ice hockey uniform, and I fucking love it. And then I got um, a corona mask right after that, and now I'm really like hooked <laughs> into my character. That, that sounds exactly like you. I bet if I booted up and joined you, I'm like, yep, that's Calvin's character, all right. <laughs> Definitely looks like me. and uh, Or it looks like what I would wear sarcastically in a video game. Uh, I, I think we're very impacted by Corona itself, and we don't have a lot of new movies, so uh, I know we would discuss some older films. Yeah, uh, there are no new movies right now, really, as far yeah. as I know. So, did you know this is the first time box office has ever been zero dollars? Has it really? Ooh, oh, yeah. My God. I, I don't remember. First when, time in history. I don't remember what year, like the box office, like they started counting receipts and such. It must have been like in the thirties. I'm guessing. Yeah, I'm guessing even later than that. But after the after I, the last epidemic, I know for pandemic. sure. I know for sure based on some of the writing I did that the box office receipts existed at least in the 1930s. I know okay, that, that's good to know. I know that at least. So, um, maybe there were like some theaters open during like the nineteen eighteen thing, but this time there's zero dollar income for box office, which is insane. Yeah, well, that's the thing is I see lots of comparisons to the the Spanish flu in nineteen eighteen and nineteen nineteen, but the the effects here, at least the response to it, uh, and the closure of everything worldwide is so much greater than that was at any point. That was very uh, isolated things. Like, there's lots of closures in Los Angeles and stuff, but I don't think yeah. literally everywhere was closed like it is right now. And no, who knows I think, for how much longer. <laughs> I think because there was less science, things closed as people died, right? Like, it wasn't like a preventative, let's close everything. It's like, people died, then we close some stuff. Yeah, and they're like, all right, we'll close for a couple days or weeks or whatever. But right. now, this, is, this has been going on for... A while now and with no indication of letting up uh soon <laughs> i think we just we just got the announcement for washington last night that... so <laughs> i played a game with laura we had to decide who was going to review free guy whenever that comes out in six months so uh, if uh, there was a shelter in place order i believe uh, she would have to review it that's how it went right and then if there wasn't yeah. then i'd have to do it you kept you, yeah, well, that was something along the lines. And then, like, in the five minutes leading up to it, you kept adjusting the rules. <laughs> to, like, against your favor, for whatever reason. You're like, oh, but he has to say these exact words for me, you know, to in order to win. <laughs> I needed and then he has to, to be say... doing this specific hand gesture. <laughs> and he needs to wink twice, and then uh, yeah. uh, then he needs to tweak his nose. <laughs> he needs to do a pirouette, in, and then backwards... And then, then I win. Like, it's like you wanted to review Free Guy. I kind of do now, but uh, I think I, I knew there was going to be an order, so I just wanted to make it so it was still a game, because I knew he was going to say something. I didn't know if it would be equivalent, or if we'd have to, like, I wanted a clear victory or a loss here. I, I think you were you were so confident in the fact that he was going to announce that that you thought he was going to say the literal idea of the shelter as well. That's how confident you were. It's just it's just like a touch too confident. Yeah. You didn't want it to seem like it was entirely like you were just you know entirely you know got it because of this vague prediction. Yeah. That that seemed very obvious to you. I'm sure. Right. I, I really wanted it if, to be like he's going to say these words and here's a paragraph that he's going to read out afterwards. Yeah, if it help, if it helps, I also was kind of on your side. I'm like, I think Inslee's gonna, you know, call a, a shelter in place or whatever here because that's he's been 
we've been incrementally stepping it up. Although, I don't know if this is the best address still. Like, I, I still don't know what uh, essential services means. Like, nobody has strictly <laughs> defined what this means. And so that's what gives people like GameStop the ability for so long to be like, yep, we're staying open. We're essential. I know my friends at Barnes & Noble are uh, pretty annoyed that they still have to work and they, they don't really understand why they're essential. <laughs> Yeah, I I often think about the fact because I work in a grocery store and stuff now. I'm like, huh, what if I was still working at like a call center like I was yeah. four years ago or whatever? Uh, I mean, I guess I would be working from yeah, home, you would. which would suck. Yeah. That would be awful. It would be terrible. Don't don't work at a call center, people. It's it's terrible, terrible business. Yeah. It's soulless. It's crushing. Yeah, I mean, you kind of want to separate that from where you live, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, I just want to separate that from my life in general. That was awful. Have I ever told you I worked at a call center that ended up being a fraud, and I think I only got paid for, like, a week? How long did you work Two for? weeks. <laughs> then they shut down well, for frauds. That was a very quick shutdown. I worked for uh, six months, and it wasn't so much the the customers that were an issue. I was actually pretty good with the customers. It was just the... The demand of it and the insistence of always, you know, being on calls and constantly working, you know, that, you know, the the company demanded of you and such. Like, the fact that they only allotted, like, 15 minutes of, like, free time away from the phones outside of your mandated breaks. Yeah. Including for bathroom trips. Like, that was insane to me. It was just such an insane workplace, and eventually I just stopped showing up after I lost it one day. (laughs) I wouldn't blame you. And then they called... Like, already at a point where I had called out enough to be legally fired, yeah. and then for an additional two weeks without even calling, like, they still didn't bother firing me. And so, like, the day I woke up, I was like, all right, I'm just going to go in and quit because I can't handle, like, doing this. And they called me up that day, and they're like, hey, David, please don't come back. I'm like, okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's funny they didn't touch base for a couple of weeks. Those things are so loose. They don't care because they just, you know, they have people on the phones and that, you know, as long as they're taking calls, they don't care about the right. people and stuff. Like, they had, you know, if they could do it all with machines and do it convincingly, yeah, they, they would will, do it. I'm sure, eventually, once the machines have inflections and, um... Yeah, and so, so... we don't have any new movies. Think, um, what did you watch this week? Uh, I mean, I watched... One film in particular that really impressed me, of course, I'm I'm bouncing a lot of back and forth between uh, stuff that I've got sitting on the Criterion channel, of course, because I love the Criterion channel, getting through all my classic Hollywood stuff. And one I happened to hit today that I was not expecting to be, or mm. not today, but this week, uh, that I was not expecting to be so phenomenal, was uh, George Stevens's A Place in the Sun, which is a 1951 film... Starring Montgomery Clift, Elizabeth Taylor, and Shelley When it Richardson. circles back to Criterion, I'm positive I'll watch it as well and we'll get a podcast going. But uh, what did you like so much about... Uh... The, yeah. The, this one, definitely, I think we'll talk about in the future. Because I, I have not been as thoroughly impressed or engaged with the film in, in many, many months. Uh, and so it was it was absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. And it's leaving the channel this month, so that's why it's not our topic of discussion this week. But... What I loved about it so much was the uh, the the raw subtext that was just uh, always communicated, both through the subtle performances of great method actors like Clift, as well as the really stark and engaging cinematography from Stevens. He had this very like I was I was noticing these brilliant uses of the edit uh, that that were able to create and you know break tension seamlessly. Like the the first moment when Clift and Taylor meet. They, you know, they show these scenes and these two shots, and then these really nice close-ups, and then there's this very quick, very quick, less than half a second shot, you know, after these long takes of them together, of someone entering the room, and then a quick cut back to them reacting to the person entering the room, and then cutting back to the wide shot with the the man entering the space, and it and it communicated that sense of interruption so beautifully, in such an incredible way through the edit that I was was really stunned. And there was just edits and shots like that throughout the entire film that were able to communicate the feelings underneath the surface there mm. that were never explicitly um, stated. I've been interested because I love Shane, of course, and I, I hear a lot about the cinematography and how it's bleak mm. and how it has a lot of interesting dissolves, and that interests me a lot. Yeah, it's it's a very beautifully rendered film, and I think it's got these you know titanic kind of themes, uh, and, and again, it embodies, it's based on a 
a novel called The American Tragedy, which is obviously reflected in the material there. It's about, uh, basically the story here is about um, Montgomery Cliff's character falling in love with this one girl who he meets. He's a poor boy and it, who's mm. still attached to a rich American family name. So he kind of works his way up the company ladder and he meets Shelley Winters early on. But he also falls in love with Elizabeth Taylor, who's this very debutante, you know, beautiful, stunning woman. And it's the the push and pull of these two classes, these poles here, that mm-hmm. you see reflected in kind of American society. And that's really, uh, it's really fantastic in that way. And, and how it talks about America without being explicit about it it's in a simpler story. Chaplin actually called it the greatest movie made about America. Yeah, I saw that quote from him as well, that... That interests me a lot. I'll be looking into it later. Yeah, and again, we'll we'll come around to it once it comes out somewhere. I think it's criminal that this, as well as the film we're talking about this week, doesn't have a Blu-ray release here in America. Neither of these films do, and the criteria needs to get on it. I need to see these films on Blu-ray. Both could really use them, I think. I'm I'm shocked because they're both like best picture nom or I mean Paper Moon isn't but this was a best picture nominee a big front runner in 1951. 1951 was a stacked year because you also had a streetcar named Desire that year, which was a huge front runner as well. Uh, in the meantime, I've been watching some great Kelly movies. I figured she has so few she had like a five year career, so I could probably fit those in within the week. Yeah, it's, it's actually surprising, and Grace Kelly has a really interesting history as well, because, you know, after her movie career, she went on to be Princess of Morocco. Yeah. So Was it Monaco, I believe, or Morocco? Monaco, okay. Monaco, Monaco. I got, I got that right. off. And Monaco was like the playground for, like, celebrities and whatnot back then. Like, that's where the rich and famous went, and they partied, and uh, it, it was just a huge status thing to be, to be elevated to that level. Yeah, but of course, you know, we, we cinephiles remember her best for her movie careers, particularly the uh, three collaborations with Hitchcock, which said uh, mm. Dial M for Murder, Rear Window, and To Catch yeah. a Thief. Um, I started with To Catch a Thief, which uh, doesn't do a lot for me. Pretty middling Hitchcock. I think you had about the same score there. Yeah. It's it's very beautiful. Vista Vision yeah. is an incredible process, and there's lots of nice pretty color in it, but uh, it's very obvious what the the uh mystery is like right up front like there's no subtlety to it and uh carrie grant's charisma can only go so far <laughs> i'm glad right after that we transitioned to rear window which is such an undeniable thriller i mean that everything about it is good from the production to like all the acting is good the way it's set up mm-hmm. is just phenomenal and it draws me in the same way every time i hope i hope you revisited uh Graham's piece on Rear Window after watching again, it, it always, I think, is wonderful to read. You know, it's such a short read, too, but it really is a very good explanation of the greatness and the uh, the meta-textual element of Rear Window. Definitely read so uh, Graham's piece. It's called The Language of Cinema on the site. It's uh, really beautiful. Like it just it shows what he knows about Hitchcock. Graham, uh, Graham knows so much about Hitchcock and is really an expert on those films. So it's good when he could get to show that. Well, did you watch anything else of interest? I know there's there's still quite a bit. Uh, did you watch Dial M yet for the other Hitchcock? Um, I've I've watched uh, Dial M some, somewhat recently. I'm going to try to clean up I, some I actually, blind spots. Cause I, I saw I it's saw on, a... if you want to stream it, it's on Hoopla right now, which is a service. It's a service you can get okay. through your library. You just got to sign up with your library card info. But dot. I know High, High Society is one of my wife's favorites. So, uh, she's such a big fan of Grace Kelly. She read books about it. Her and everything, and uh, so we've—it's been fun. Uh, uh, a lot society. of a lot of difficulty. Oh, oh I was going to say, High Society is one that interests me. It's a musical remake of the Philadelphia Story, uh, and I know it's got like Bing yeah. Crosby and uh, who else stars in it? Uh, Frank Sinatra. That's right. He plays the two. Yeah, and I love both of them, especially Bing. I've been listening to a lot of Bing Crosby lately. Uh, you know, at work and free time because I find his music so wholesome and comforting. You know, and I think in the way that a lot of uh, people who especially who uh connect him with you know like christmas music and such do but just his music portfolio in general gives me that same feeling high society also feels a lot like uh what was your movie this week a place yeah. in the sun uh, um that that's kind of the same storyline is it's about classes well, and uh having to date with, right but the... one's a comedy musical and the other is a grand tragedy <laughs> yeah about yeah. the same 
Uh, I know that Bing also stars in a film with uh, Grace Kelly called The Country Girl, with uh, William Holden in it as well. I'm excited to look at that one. That I think that'll be our next All one. Alright, you have to tell me about that one. I hope to hear more about that. But, yeah, I'm glad that your your wife has this affection for Grace Kelly. She's certainly such a uh, magnificent star, even from, like, her first roles in, like, uh, High Noon, which we should talk about eventually. Um, even though she's such a small part in that. <laughs> have, have we no, done High no, Noon? I've done High remember. Noon. I did a... That's one of my okay. favorite pieces I wrote on the site. I talked about the, the, the clocks and the usage of time throughout the film. It's on the site. You can check that out. I really thought we did a podcast no, already. No, <laughs> there's so many westerns we still have to get to, man, and we'll get to them soon. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, that's good to know that we still have high noon left yeah. to go, I think. Um, and I watched uh, the Magamba, which isn't really a oh, western, yeah, but it's a John Ford of... movie about his affection for Africa. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember the the reasoning behind that, because there's, there's like two kind of John... Ford films. There's the ones he was really passionate about making mm-hmm. and meant something about him, and then there's the ones he just did because it's a paycheck and it's very obvious. <laughs> well, one sure. I watched not too long ago, and uh, people who are super big fans of John Wayne might disagree, but they have you know blinders when they're that is a film called Donovan's Reef with uh, yeah. Wayne and uh, Lee Marvin, and it's obviously just a, a, an excuse that they, so they could all go to Hawaii on the studio's dime. It's just it's a nonsensical <laughs> right. like party messes like oh look he's you know we're skiing and stuff and now there's a brawl in a bar oh it's so much fun it's dumb it's a dumb movie <laughs> it's it's a lot of that it's a lot of that's got them to kenya and he doesn't really care about like nurturing grace kelly into an actor he's like i'll take the first shot and go right like he doesn't really care about nurturing new actors and wants to work with the veterans right. but ava gardner is really great in it and uh it's kind of another romantic triangle with Clark Gable, and uh, there's a lot of uh, racism that goes unaddressed here. Yeah, that, that doesn't surprise me too much. Not that Ford is a yeah. racist person in his films or anything, typically, but that, that's that, that, just that, the that's just well, the yeah, story. it's the story, it's yeah. the time, it's the setting. But you know, I guess something around the same time, like uh, John Huston's The African Queen, doesn't come across racist yeah. really at all. Sure. I mean, I think the opening line is, could you go grab that for me, Brownie? I think it's a little bit over the edge, but... Yeah, I don't know. I'll, uh, I'll get to it eventually as a big Ford fan, of course, but uh, I won't promise that I like it. If it had widescreen, I think it would be a, almost a great movie, because uh, we're looking at um, just about the time we started getting CinemaScope, and the African photography is really good, and it looks nice, but uh, it, it could use a little bit of a wider lens. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess we'll report back next week with uh, other things we've been watching besides our feature. (laughs) Unless anything else um, new comes out. Yeah, we did have one new thing come out this week. Oh, hit me with it. uh, What was it called? Uh, I've read the book. All right. I I guess since uh, I don't... Little Fires Everywhere. (laughs) So what is this? Um, Have you heard of Celeste Ng? Celeste Ng? Yeah. Uh, Very popular author. New York Times bestseller. This has been a popular book for a few years. No, I'm going to say I haven't, but you shouldn't be surprised okay. by that, of course. Sure. <laughs> uh, she writes stories about, like, uh, small towns in Ohio and, like, outlying neighborhoods. And uh, this is such a great book, one of the best in the last decade, I believe. And uh, it has a lot of racial value, and it's about two families living in the same community, and an African-American family moves in. And uh, Reese Witherspoon's character... Uh, sells housing and she realized it's the family that she called the cops on before so oh. she feels a lot of white guilt and although they want to leave in a year she stretches her rules and lets them in but they realize they have no place there interesting and this is a uh, where is this uh, that people can watch this uh, it's streaming on Hulu right now and it's only a three episode miniseries so it's like a three hour movie effectively okay. I just want to say that uh, Reese Witherspoon is becoming the patron saint of literary adaptation for television as specific as that is what what are some of the others that she's done um well big little lies is the big one right like i i just have right. a feeling that reese witherspoon's book club if you go into a bookstore it's about as prominent as the oprah thing now like she's stamped on every book she's like getting entangled with publishers and uh, she's starting to bring some really big stories onto the small screen so that's really fun to see that path for 
Nice. Well, that is an exciting thing for people who don't want to just hear us talk about old Hollywood movies uh, can go see. <laughs> yeah, um, really good and available right now, the whole thing. So go watch that. That's It's a good racial movie, too. It, it makes it very obvious it's about racism, and uh, it, I think you get what you're looking for. It's a good counterpoint to Magambo, it sounds like. A nice recovery there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have to have a variety of things. Like I want to hit all these directors and get through Ford too, but I want to I want to watch some new stuff in the yeah, meantime. Yeah, no, it's important. You someone's got to. I mean, I know I'm content just to watch Ford films, but <laughs> sure. Um, do you feel like uh, this week's feature? Oh, my theory on it is that it is a western. You think you think Paper Moon is a western? Yeah, without the obvious styling of a western, I feel like it's basically a remake of Red River and. Um, what would you say? I mean, uh, I, I'd say True Grit and Red River. I can see certainly where you're coming from there, especially kind of leaning a little bit more towards True Grit uh, based on yeah. the relationship we're, we're talking about at the center here. And I see what you mean in terms of the Western here. I mean, especially uh, since we're set in the Depression era time here, you can look at something again like a John Ford film, like uh, The Grapes of Wrath, which I also wrote about recently. Um, in how it's in similar ways about like you know the American dream of forging you know westward and you know claim you know making your uh, claiming your stake uh, and pulling yourself up by the bootstraps you know all of that kind of you know American dream kind of stuff where you're you're going from rags to riches and this idea that even the poor can become successful and in that manner I see the Western parallels certainly uh, because. Paper Moon is all about that. It's it's American to its core, I think, in that regard. Yeah. I mean, you end up with those really cool shots. Like, uh, we'll get to some of them in a little bit. But I've also heard, like, through my research that it's a lot of it is, like, uh, Grapes of Wrath and from Tobacco Road from Ford especially. Yeah. Well, and that's not surprising considering who, you know, directs the film and so on here. And there was actually a shot. I had to, I had to stop for a moment when I watched the film. It was uh, later on in the film when the cops are uh, harassing Moe's and uh, Tatum O'Neill's character, whose name I forget right now. It's uh, Addy. Moe's and Addy. Moe's and Addy. Addy Prairie, yeah. Yeah, Moe's and Addy. uh, And there's this shot where, you know, the cop, like, they're they're walking out. She has to go to the bathroom, remember? Yeah. And they're walking down the hall, and the cop leans up against the side with the door at the end of the hall in the center of the frame. And it's exactly like this beautiful shot in Stagecoach where John Wayne goes out to follow Claire Trevor's character outside. And I had to stop and I rewound the film to show my fiance and I pulled up the picture. I'm like, look, it's exactly like that. Of course, of course, Bogdanovich is hugely influenced by Ford. He had a documentary he made about Ford just two years prior to Paper Moon called Directed by John Ford. (laughs) It's obvious where his influence and his attention has been for a while. And I'm sure that, um, I'm sure his relationship with Wells only encourages yeah. what he does. There, there's a final shot with the horizon, beautifully, you know, made picturesque as well in a very poetic way, like Ford as well. You know, you could see Ford's fingerprints and influence all over here. And again, with Wells as well, because, of course, Wells actually had a tiny bit of input or, or at least encouragement on Bogdanovich, you know, during the making of uh, Paper Moon here. It's really interesting that it's regressive in this. It's like a regressive pastiche, but it has so much originality that I don't want to call it derivative at the same time. I don't think it's regressive myself, but it's it's emulating uh, older films. Look again because you see those parallels to something like The Grapes of Wrath, particularly, or other films. The black and white cinematography really takes you back to the 1940s, you know, in a beautiful way, and I think it's because of a lot of the the advice he got and also just his own uh, emulation of those films those are the films Bogdanovich grew up on and particularly you referenced Red River as well which is like one of Bogdanovich's favorite films of all time I can read that in there I suppose what I mean by a regression is more that it's not so much new Hollywood at all it's very pre-code um, it feels a lot like there's a, well the only new Hollywood or uh new wave thing about it versus being a studio movie, I think is that it uses real locations and, and there's vehicles in it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I can see it, man. Again, it, it definitely doesn't align, especially in any kind of political manner with anything, uh, contemporary, no. contemporaneous there. 
Uh, and it's definitely more of a throwback, but it's it's a wonderful one. Maybe one of the best uh, to really capture that same kind of uh, spirit. And unlike something like The Grapes of Wrath, it's it's a lot more wholesome and optimistic about the, the time period it's depicting. I appreciate that it is about this era of America, but it also feels of those movies. Like, it could be tied in very closely. Like, I don't think it's a negative against the movie that I feel like it's just a regression back to the 30s. But uh, I, I think it's just so close to what it's portraying. That's what it wants to be. It wants to be and look like a 30s film. And I think if that that's its goal. And it achieves it, you know, miraculously, like in the look and the, the setting and the period. Like, all of the, the attention to details and the feeling you get from... You know, all the cars and the background props and the radio, the prominence of the radio throughout. It really takes you back to that time period in a, in a nostalgic way. A nostalgic way about a time period that was very miserable for most Americans. You yeah. know, the, the late 1930s. It's not a good time. No. So I think it I think it does a good job of something that it is like a funny, you know, a quirky con man story about these two going and kind of, well, they're kind of fucking people over in the worst time <laughs> they could in america right and that's that's the other thing as well is that they're they're kind of heartless in the way and especially in the early cons where they're selling bibles to recently widowed women <laughs> yeah uh for like extorted prices there yeah. like it's it's kind of horrible if you think about it in like a time of you know severe depression in in middle america <laughs> at that where people are probably so- suffering the most what do you think, like, philosophically, though? Like, if it makes someone happy and they're willing to pay the price and it delivers them something that they didn't have, do you feel like that's... Do you, you feel like they're doing a inherently negative thing or are they making people's lives better while also scamming them? Uh, I mean, it may on the surface feel like they're, they're getting some kind of renewed thing out here, but I think it also might be a weird disingenuous thing. Like, like if you just take a moment and think about the, the family one, like, where... Mm-hmm. Addie stops him and gives him the Bible for free because it's this new recently widowed wife with like seven kids and she's perplexed yeah. as to why her husband would have spent money on a Bible like <laughs> money they don't have and that's yeah. I, th- I think that applies to all of them just maybe not at a severe level why would any of these people buy it? like probably half of these people weren't all that religious you know not enough to yeah. the Bible but, I mean maybe because we're in the Bible Belt area so yeah. Uh, but it you is. Do, it, you never know, like what what someone why would why would someone buy a Bible? There are so many reasons. Or well, different. That's the thing. The con there. It takes it takes the you know like Moses assuming that they would just accept in their grief that this you know their yeah, their husband exactly. bought them a, a secretly bought them a Bible and it's a super expensive Bible at that. If you're grieving, there's no way you're thinking that far ahead. You're you know you you have kind of tunnel vision about what you're dealing with at the moment. But but you don't think about the horribleness of that con when it's happening there because Bogdanovich frames it in such a comedic way. He was he he did this film coming off of another great comedy masterpiece he did called What's Up Doc, which was another throwback to '30s films. In this case, God, screwball. I really want to see that one. <laughs> you got to, you got to. It's it's hilarious and great, especially because we I I must have brought it up on our discussion of His Girl Friday because oh yeah, he, of course he was a huge Hawks fan and there's quite a bit of Hawks influence in that film. But I'm so excited to see it. I wish that were on Criterion right now. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I saw this the same around the same time I saw What's Up Doc because they both happened to be available on Amazon for a very short stretch of time, and so mm. I was I was super excited when I saw this was coming back around to the Criterion Channel along with uh, a couple other Bogdanovich films, namely Last Picture Show and his first film Targets, which I think is also worth checking out. It's very interesting. Yeah. It has an interesting history in terms of the the Corman construction of it going on, but. Uh, I mean, the, Targets is just an interesting watch, but The Last Picture Show also very interesting, and I hope you'll get around to it. I rewatched it, I'm gonna, and I'm gonna a little cooler it. on it. Yeah, I'm going to rewatch it here soon, but Paper Moon, I think, is, is really unassailable in what it attempts to achieve here. It's it's a very fun, but also heartfelt picture, because it is, it's not built around the comedy as much as it is built around the heart and the, the core theme of this idea of family in a in a struggling time and reaching out to those who um you know you you have some kind of connection with even if it's not a an explainable connection necessarily because that's the big kind of driving force of the film here is that you don't know whether Addie and Moses are actually related as they're supposed right. to be and and you never get that answer either it's not an answer that you need though by the end for me, it's so hard to watch child actors, and this has come up before, and I think that's where we got to. We should. Well, I think we both always love this movie, so yes, we yes, both it, wanted to get to it. 
obviously, I think we talked about it for a while. There's, there's got. I remember for sure on the podcast in there was a contemporary film recently that you talked about having the best child performance because you, you love to make those those grand accusations. Um, and and then I brought I up like I can't think of any. I can't I can't remember what it was for the life of me, but I know that I retorted with Paper Moon because this is like the child actor film. This is the one we talk about because of course Tatum O'Neill won the Oscar in 1974 for Best Supporting Actress, and she's the youngest person to ever win at the age of 10. 10! It, it's really... I mean, there's there's a lot of creepy layers here in the movie. That uh, There's the bit where she's, like, smoking the cigarette, and you feel like a sexualization happened, like, that like kind of fades over her on the frame, and there's a weird, like, incestuous thing here, of course, but... Uh, and there's also, like, the Me Too news, but yeah. that doesn't, like, directly reflect well, you, the impact of this. You know, it's interesting you brought up the kind of incestuous thing there, because that was something my, my fiancé highlighted for a moment, because there's a sequence in the film kind of centered around when Madeline Kahn's character enters into the film, who's, yeah. so, who's so wonderful. She practically runs away with the film when she's on, in it for a little while there. She's just so great and over-the-top and charismatic. I love I love Madeline Kahn and just about everything. But uh, particularly in... Uh, Addie's reaction to her presence and how she steals away Moe's attention. Like, her her immediate reaction to that is to present herself as more ladylike to try and win back uh, Moe's. <laughs> and she does so. She kind of looks in the mirror. She poses like her mom did in the picture she has. She puts on, like, this yeah. excessive amount of perfume. She goes out of her way to dress more ladylike. Um... And I see like the the kind of sexual or romantic reading of that, in that she's she feels something like this affection to an older man. But for me personally, I read it more just of that straight that she's trying to present herself as more womanly because she sees that as what Mose is attracted to, not necessarily in a romantic sense, but she's just trying to win back his affection because really throughout the film she sees her him as a father figure, and that's what she wants out of him, you know, throughout. And there's something in it, too. I was just thinking about how there's so much sexualization around this child. And then just me thinking about how uh, Ryan O'Neill may have, uh, you know, allowed his drug dealer to rape her. It's a, it's very heavy. Um, yeah. And there, there's a weird tie-in to real life here where, where there's a, a truth to that incestuous relationship that's kind of difficult. It's It's interesting to consider that as well in the context here, though I don't. As with any film we've talked about before, the outside uh, politics don't necessarily hamper the experience yeah, I, here. But but it's I just very... feel like there's a thing where she might be already being raped, and she might be able to play this really adult young child because she's getting molested all the time. You know. Well, there's it's... there's certainly a, a an advanced maturity to her on screen that you see. Again, it's hard to believe that she's a ten year old doing such a great performance here. And I think part of I mean you can attribute some of that. I, I don't want to say that the trauma informs the performance really. Cause that's, that's kind of icky and, and gross, but I mean, I, I, I can't see how it wouldn't, I guess. Oh, because I don't think that it, cause I think that might be unintentionally like encouraging in a weird way. I, I don't know. It, it feels like a really weird, sure. weird thing to discuss. Like basically saying, Oh, she's so great because of her trauma. Like that's awful to because say. Because she got and raped. I, yeah, that, that that's awful, and I don't think a true idea at all. It's just like basically attributing to this great and possibly best child performance because of you know tapped into trauma here, and I I don't think that's the case. I think that also takes away from the genuine nature of her great performance here, both through her, I mean, yeah, her acting and Bogdanovich's direction. Until very recently, most child performers were being molested and you know groomed and you well, know, it's and not all like sorts it was of a rare all sorts thing. of terrible things. And there's like you can look back at the history all the way to performers like Jackie Coogan, who got entirely robbed of his fortune by his parents because of lack of child labor laws. You know, up until that point sure. in the 1920s. Um, I feel like it makes her appear so strong and adult, though, that she's obviously lived so much as a child. And I don't mean to say that every child should be, you know, no. go through a drama. Uh, I just mean that she shows such strength and that she's been through real adversity, and it really shows, I think. Well, you see it through some of her other child performances. She's just a really confident actor, which is surprising. Of yeah, I just like think she people also... should... Go ahead. I just think people should live before they act, and I, 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 I get the feeling she's really lived, and she's been around things, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, my, my alternative pick was Exorcist, <laughs> is my favorite child performance. 
Well, it's such a it's interesting one as well because both her and Linda Blair were uh, nominated at the same for the same Oscar for best uh, best actress supporting actress in 1974, and um, you know of course unfortunately Tatum, Tatum won. <laughs> unfortunately, probably a lot of trauma inflicted on her on set as well. So. Oh yeah, I but, don't know what I'm trying to say about child actors. <laughs> I don't know. You've gone on this weird tangent, and that's why I was trying to damage control there. But uh, I get I get where you're coming from, but. I don't, I don't, I don't wanna... think we need to protect the movie or the people that made it, really. But... No, no, it's not the worst thing. Like you said, you didn't think about it at all, even though we we faintly remembered accusations against Ryan O'Neill. Uh, I didn't remember watching. the full nature of them. No. I was just like, I know there's something incestuous and weird about him, and I know he didn't do but anything, but I know he might we, have we did our We did our due diligence before sitting down to record, and we did our little bit of research. So we're informed here, and we're not just ignorantly spouting off about the film. But I think, generally, like again, the the film has this wholesome nature about it that it's it's very easy to separate the two. I think while still acknowledging the uh, the politics and the nature of what we know now about you know Tatum's history of uh, neglect and abuse, uh, and that we can apply to their relationship, which you can kind of see on screen again. I, in the weird way of how that relationship kind of is reflected, this this battle between the two, but I, I think it's played very well in the context of the film, their relationship. I didn't realize that she was the youngest Oscar winner in the history of well, the Oscars. I mean, uh, for competitive category, Shirley Temple won one at like six. Like it was a, uh, it, you know, it was one of those "Give Me Oscars." It was an honorary award, yeah. but she's the she's the youngest for a competitive Oscar. Which is basically okay. the ones that count. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. And I feel like uh, because it came out a year or two after True Grit, I feel like a lot of that toughness and world wariness. Well, it's one of the great American novels. So of course, you have to draw from it. Um, I think all American stories are shaped by True Grit after that came out anyway. <laughs> I, I I think that's I, I don't know. You mean the novel? Every or the movie? <laughs> oh, the novel. Okay, I was gonna say because the movie eh, maybe not as much that you know the 1969 movie. It's it's good, but it's not uh, like the great American movie. I guess we'll say. <laughs> no, I think this is a greater movie overall. Than oh, True oh, Grit. for sure. We'll talk about True Grit someday, though, because we like True Grit. True Grit's fun. So. I like both versions of True Grit. Well, True Grit's one of my favorite stories of all yeah. time. So I like anything that falls into that mold. And uh, what I like here is that. Um, I think Roger Ebert, I was reading his review, was saying it's not about the con, it's about the shared experience that they have, and it's not a con movie. And I think that's what I appreciate, too, that it's about their emotional experience and how they connect to each other as people. Right, well, and that's what I was talking about earlier as well with this idea of the uh, the relationship, and it doesn't really matter whether they are, in fact, related or not, it's about that. And no. that's why I thought the, the title change is such a, a profound move as well. Uh, what I know was it called before? Originally, it was based off of the... the book or the play i think it was it was called uh addy prey which is of okay. course the name of the you know the little girl character and the last name of Moe's, who she might be related to but bogdanovich didn't like the name at all and so when he was searching through <laughs> music con, you know like contemporaneous music for the film for the 1930s he came across uh it's only a paper moon which uh you know and he presented that as an alternative title an idea to, to orson wells who of course you know helped him in, and wells's reaction was great of course, and he's like, you know, you know, that title is so good, shouldn't even make the movie. Just release the title. <laughs> yeah, he said, like, don't release the movie, release the title, which yeah. is a fantastic Wellsian quote, I think. But but I think especially because they, he puts the song up there up front, and the the lyrics of it speak so clearly uh, to the, the idea and the themes of the film. There, this idea of it's uh, it's only a paper moon sailing over a cardboard sea. Uh, but it wouldn't be make-believe if you believed in me. It's this idea that it doesn't matter the, the kind of constructed nature or the believability or fakeness of, you know, what this is, this being the relationship in this context. Um, as long as you believe in it and it means something to you, then that's all you need. That's all the, you know, the faith you have to have in it. And that, I think, reflects their relationship between Addie and Moe's perfectly. Their relationship is the paper moon. Yeah, I think there's like a whole thematic reading to do around the song. Like that could be its own article. That would be a really great one to do. Yeah, it's a. Yeah, I think it's a. It's a great title. 
that stands out without and with the connection to the song there, which also gives it that feeling of the the setting as well. It plays into that. It's just it's a really great encompassing one for a, an odd title. Like it's it's something you have to think about. I think whereas I you know I, I hate films that are just names. I don't like titles that are just names. It t- it tells you like nothing. I feel like there. It depends on the name. Like, it if it's a well written name or a characterized name, like I'll take like a Dirty Harry. I'm fine with that. Oh, it's got like a bit more of a nickname to it. Yeah, but something like yeah. uh, uh, Rebecca, I guess. What does Rebecca tell me? You about don't the like film? Rebecca? <laughs> I mean, that, Rebecca's that, a good name. Well, I mean, what does it tell you about the film? That's my point. It's not. Well, it's not, it's not because, the literal like, name. The mystery. Rebecca is the mystery. Is she, is she there? Is she not? It's, but, but like, it, it only matters if you know the context of the film. Like, if you're just looking right. at it from an advertising perspective, which I think you should in terms of the title of something, it's supposed to be attention-grabbing and informative in some way. You know, it doesn't it doesn't tell you anything. It's just a but name. What does Paper Moon tell you if you don't know the song? I think it still has that, that general intrigue. It's this idea of a constructed uh, image. It's, it's not something that's that's real it's a it's a fake it's a facade you know and so that's what you can read it immediately it you gain the context the film gives you the greater context right up front out of the gate which i think is nice but but yeah obviously uh it it prevents it presents this idea this interesting concept i think when you just hear the name paper moon because it is these these two things that don't really go together uh, or at least you don't think about. So when you think about what that means, it creates this image, and then that creates the intrigue, which you go into. Whereas opposed to just a plain name, it doesn't do anything for me. I feel like it does well to play off the name too. Like it gets into like a little bit of a carnival aesthetic, and everything's facade, and it's not what you think it is, yeah. and it's about trickery, and uh, that makes sense for a movie about conning that it would be called a paper mint. Well, it's interesting as well that you know the same year again more things going on the same year not just the exorcist but we also got another great con film that same year which won best picture which was the sting of course which is like the con film um i really wish exorcist won that year but if it had to be something else why not the sting well it's also funny because the sting is also a 1930s period film you know about con men how did that happen in the same year (laughs) we were looking at 1973 in general what a year we had mean streets we had badlands and the wicker man don't look now an almond film yeah fantastic planet also good a lot serpico we just got to talk about 1973 i think from now on all right this is no <laughs> longer for fake are you kidding <laughs> oh yeah oh my god let's more well stuff uh the last detail which i just watched the last week that, how, that was how ashby really great and yeah. that's the thing is while we were talking about that because there's the uh, uh oh my god what's his name i'm forgetting already uh jack nicholson no 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 first? not jack nicholson um Shit, I lost it. Where, where's his name in here? Dennis Quaid. That's right. Dennis Quaid is in okay. both both those movies. He plays the 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 sailor, the main sailor who's you know getting uh, sent to jail in Last yeah. Detail. But he's also he's the giant hillbilly who Ryan O'Neill wrestles for the truck in this one. Or he has, yeah, he, which is a fun scene. And that's the thing is it's just it's full of a lot of Paper Moon. At the end of it, is just full of a lot of fun and comedic scenes and. The, the chemistry between Tatum and Ryan is really charming, and they're both really great on their own. I'm still thinking about the line, drop your socks and grab your cocks for going to party. <laughs> <laughs> the last detail. From kinda, the last detail. Yeah, that's a good movie. People no, it, watch it totally that movie is. On, uh, whatever it's on. It was on not too long ago. I caught it on the Criterion channel before it left. Uh, yeah, so, see, we, we keep wanting to talk about films that are gone already. We need to talk about ones that are... Is it gone? It's. I think it's left already. I watched it before it left. Okay. Uh, it'll come around though again. I'm sure. The. I mean, this next month is a great lineup, and we're gonna definitely steal some from there. Lots of stuff they're bringing back, like their Columbia Noir package from a year ago, and a bunch of new stuff added mm-hmm. to that. Uh, but hopefully, I mean, I'm thinking we won't talk just about Criterion Channel stuff. Maybe next week, before we get to some other films that we're looking forward to talking about, we'll talk about something on Amazon or Netflix. Maybe something. What about know, our? We have that Disney Plus one coming up. Yes, I don't want to spoil anything, of course, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get there. We're gonna get some variety, and we'll come back around to the Criterion Channel soon enough because, of course, we love Criterion for everything they send us, and there's so many great films that they have present. But we want to make sure that we represent films from all streaming services, so the people who, for whatever reason, haven't jumped on board the Criterion ship yet, can also enjoy our recommendations. 
Well, we're going to do a monthly criterion, and then next month we're going to cover Crackle exclusively. <laughs> yeah, we'll get ready. A uh, month of Crackle during the uh, quarantine here. <laughs> crackle for quarantine. A- April Fool's, I guess? Yeah. Uh, I get- by the way, we're not going to talk about video games ever again, are we? <laughs> yeah, no, uh, maybe we will. It depends on what comes out. We'll see what happens next week. It, this well, The whole world is up in the air right now. You know, Who knows true. what we're going to do? <laughs> All right, thanks, man. I'm glad we got to Paper Moon. I I love the yeah. movie and this discussion, so I appreciate play, you. Play us out with the song here. if you would. That'd be nice. Say it's only a paper moon sailing over a cardboard sea, but it wouldn't be make believe if you believed in me. Yes, it's only a canvas sky. Hanging over a muslin tree But it wouldn't be make-believe If you be